I am back. It is I again. Uh, so again, my name is Paul Stiver. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lowertown. I'm on staff with Hope Community Church. And I was thinking uh, yesterday about how ridiculous it is. So I was thinking my Sunday mornings used to be uh, just nursing a hangover big time. Uh, it's no offense if you're nursing one right now. Uh, just saying. That's what mine used to be. And now I'm here. Uh, and I, the reason why is not because I'm so great. Uh, at all. If you know me, that's obviously true. Uh, it's because of the power of the Word of God. And because of that power, we are looking at the story of the Bible in 16 verses. Uh, and we're trying to understand what is this story that God is telling throughout the whole Bible. So we've been, we're already in week eight, Suffering Servant, if you're looking at this graphic there on top of the screen. But real quick synopsis of the story to this point. In the beginning, God created. He's the owner. He's the king. And he created us, human beings, in his image to be his subjects, to display his glory across the world. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose sin. They rejected God. They rebelled against him and caused the fall. And now everything had come under a curse. But God right away promises redemption. If you know the story of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, he says the seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the serpent. That's some sort of weird promise that we're going to come to understand better. Uh, and that promise then is going to be carried on through a guy who's not that impressive, Abraham. In fact, it was not a worshiper of God when he, God first called him. And God says, all nations will be blessed through you. He gives these promises to Abraham. And, and then that promise is going to come through a seed, and that seed is also going to continue through the line of Judah the king, who was another, uh, just not, actually just a, not a good dude. <laughs> and, uh, sorry, Judah, but it's true. And then uh, Passover lamb was gives us more into the story, that there needs to be some sort of a sacrifice that takes place. The law system sets those sacrifices up, and then the law is kind of showing us we can't uphold the law. And so we need something greater, and we get to King David now, this representative king of God's people, uh, and yet he's full of sin. And so we're still waiting on a greater king, someone to come and be that king for us. And that's where we get to today, the suffering servant. And this is going to be a depiction of Jesus. And now there are many depictions of Jesus. You may be familiar with some of these. I call these dreamy Jesus. Uh, he's always just like white and gorgeous. I don't know how that works for Jesus, but he's a good looking dude, which actually we're going to read the passage today. Uh, Jesus doesn't look like this according to the passage today. That one uh, there on the side where he's kind of looking off to the side has actually used to be displayed right when you walked in. Now it's kind of off to the side here. Has have 500 million copies of that in print. So much Jesus everywhere. Um, we might, uh, when we think of Jesus, these are more some of my favorites from pop culture. If you can see these, so uh, there's Jesus on the side there, the greater physician. He's like helping that guy be a doctor, I guess. My favorite there in the middle though is uh, Jesus in the boxing ring and you can't see it. But on the, on the corner of the boxing ring, it just says Savior, which I love. He's just, he's in the ring for you. But the best one of all is probably biceps Jesus there on the cross, just flexing and like he's breaking off of the cross with his might, uh, which is completely opposite of what we're actually going to read today. But those are some great ones. We, oh, actually continuing on, you may have seen this. Uh, so that on the side there is Obi-Wan Kenobi played by Ewan McGregor. Uh, and then on the other side again is Jesus. Now, what someone did is they bought their mom uh, a picture of what she thought was Jesus. And for three months, it was hanging up in her home as Obi-Wan Kenobi. She thought it was Jesus and then finally recognized it. But for us, though, 
Sometimes we can struggle to recognize the real Jesus. As we read the Bible, as we come to the story, as we think about our own lives, we might have time where we have a picture on the wall of who Jesus is and we might miss actually the real Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at today, this description of Jesus from the prophet Isaiah as the suffering servant in our passage. Uh, It's going to be Isaiah 53. We're going to hone in Isaiah 53, 6 a little bit, but really read the whole passage. So Isaiah 53 is in the Bible to show us the real Jesus, confront our fake ideas about who Jesus is, and give us a gateway to salvation that is as unexpected as anything we could have even imagined. So to get into it, though, Isaiah is a prophet. So let's say a quick word about the prophets, because they are in the Bible, kind of in the middle to the end of the Old Testament, and they're very confusing. There's major prophets and minor prophets. The major ones are just ones that got promoted. Uh, no, the major prophets are those big books. Uh, it's okay to laugh. It was a bad joke, though, so it's okay if you don't laugh. Um, but the major prophets are the big books, minor prophets, the smaller books. But why do we have the prophets? Who are they? Prophets are called of God as kind of his messengers. They bring God's word to the people, not their own, which is a key thing. So they're going to speak God's word to the people, oftentimes in ways that are don't make sense to the people. Often they're calling God's people to obedience in the Old Testament, oftentimes it's to the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law. They're saying, you said you would do this with God, and you're not doing it. And so that's why you're experiencing the judgment. But they also predict the future. They point us forward to something greater, something unexpected, sometimes in language that almost doesn't make any sense. Uh, And then they do crazy prophetic speech act things to make a point. So, uh, for example, Isaiah walked around naked for three years. Uh, Jeremiah buried his underwear in the ground. And all of these things, uh, Ezekiel laid on his side for 390 days. They do these things to like make one point to God's people, which is why they have great suffering. Uh, No, they have many reasons why they have great suffering. Often they are persecuted and killed. They're rarely believed. Oftentimes you have these prophets coming to the people and saying, this is what you said. This is what God's going to do. And they get killed. And then lastly, just real quick, false prophets are real. In the Bible, false prophets are depicted of those who make predictions that don't come true. They often do it for their own gain uh, and to serve themselves, but they are not the, the things above, uh, especially called of God. And so God sends these prophets as grace to us, and that's who Isaiah is. And he's going to give us a word here. We're going to start in Isaiah 52, 13. If you want the text, uh, there's a handouts in the back. You could grab that. It's really tiny words. But uh, Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12 is the passage for today. And this is in the book of Isaiah. The Israelites, God's people, are in exile. What does that mean? It means that they said they would do this covenant with God and they aren't obedient to it. So one of the curses of that is to be sent away, to be taken away from the promised land by a foreign nation, which is where they are now. So they're under the rule of a foreign nation, away from the promised land. In fact, Jerusalem at this point has fallen. So they're hopeless. They're in despair. They're not feeling near to God. This here is called a servant song. It's the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. And he's depicting this servant that is going to do something for God and on behalf of God's people. And so that's where we are when we get to this passage. It's a long passage, so bear with me. Starting in verse 13, it says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. 
Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So as we read this, this is Nick Cage again. He puts these glasses on in National Treasure, if you haven't seen the movie, and then he can see clearly. When we come to this passage, if we put the Jesus glasses on, we can see this passage clearly. But actually, it's interesting. I'm doing research this week. Very many people are confused about what this passage means, who the servant is, what he's accomplishing. If we're supposed to see Jesus clearly in Isaiah 53, which we are, how, why don't we? How do we misread the story? How do we misunderstand Jesus? How do we lose our ability to recognize him? And I want to introduce a concept called uh, what's called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a way that we can uh, get our lenses shifted and not have the right lenses on when we look at Jesus. So it's moralistic therapeutic deism. I'm going to quote an article uh, where Tim Keller is quoting a book here. He says, several years ago, sociologist Christian Smith published Soul Searching, an in-depth look at the religious beliefs of American adolescents. This was so old that it actually will describe many of us in the room. And in fact, I think describes a lot of American Christianity. An in-depth look at the religious beliefs of American adolescents. He summarized their faith as, quote, moralistic therapeutic deism. He said, youth are moralistic because they don't believe that uh, to relate to God, they need radical grace and forgiveness. They feel that anyone who is good and fair to others can go to heaven. This has historically been the view of Pharisees in the, in the Bible, legalists who assign themselves a strict regimen of religious duties 
and observances. So first, moralistic. We've got, we look at things from a good, bad binary. Maybe I'm good, they're bad. Uh, we tend to, uh, I, I think we think, if I just do more good than bad, if I outweigh the scales uh, with good, then God will accept me. Then God will love me. That's got to be good enough for God. We're actually very moralistic. If you think about how often you uh, maybe we'll buy a product from one company versus another company because you prefer their morals or their commitments to something over another, right? We we always think in terms of this good and bad. It's very American to think this way. So we are moralists. He continues though, but young Americans' faith is also therapeutic. Most believe that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. This means essentially that people have to determine what is good and right for them and live consistently with it. So the Pharisees' high bar has been lowered almost to ground level. So real quick, therapeutic. We determine the morality. The highest values are uh, our happiness, our ability to choose what makes us happy, and our self-esteem. So if something were asked of us that was difficult, the problem is not with us, but with that thing. And so those are things we deem most important than deistic here. Finally, American youth are deistic which just means God is kind of like a watchmaker. He set things in motion, but he's removed and the watch is running. They believe God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. To live a good life, then, there is no need for constant spiritual intervention or and support. God has made us, but now God helps those who help themselves. One of the most common phrases we hear, right? So deistic is this idea that God is far off and we want him there. Deistic is Jesus is on the wall, but nowhere near my life. All right. Deism is I got this. And so we got to introduce another concept. This is the apostle Peter. Now, because we tend to read the story as moralistic therapeutic deists, I have to show us that we are not the first ones to read the story this way or to come to Isaiah 53 that way. So this is the apostle Peter from the uh, the movie Chosen, and he misread Isaiah 53, and in a lot of his interactions with Jesus, he didn't actually recognize who Jesus was. And as we see his misunderstanding, we're going to see our own. So he's going to act as what's called an audience surrogate. This is an idea, if you're watching a movie or TV show, you kind of are seeing yourself in the character. So it could be the, the main character, it could be a character who asks the questions the audience would ask and says the things the audience, we the audience would say. Or it could be a character who the audience uh, or children in the audience don't sympathize with, but actually are supposed to see ourselves as by desire, by default, or author inference. So just some examples. If you've ever seen these things, uh, Penny from the Big Bang Theory, when the, the nerdy characters on the Big Bang Theory use big words, and we, the audience, are confused, so is she, so she asks them to clarify. Or Jim on The Office, he's known for his famous Jim camera face. He looks at the camera and I can't do it. I'm not good at it. But anyway, right? Because there's a ridiculous scenario happening. We're watching and we're like, this is absurd. And he looks at the camera and acts like us, showing the absurdity. And then even Harry Potter. Harry Potter is uh, actually an, uh, an audience surrogate for us because he's learning about wizardry as we are. And so these audience surrogates teach us something about ourselves by representing us in the story. And the Apostle Peter does just that. So first we see Peter the Therapeutic. This is from Mark chapter 8, and this is going to be one of the high points, the high point of Peter's life to this point. Jesus and his disciples went up 
onto the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? So they've been walking with Jesus for a while. And Jesus is like, who do, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And you can almost picture Peter just like kind of stumbling, blurted, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This is the high point though. Peter is, you are the Messiah. You're God's king. You're the one who's come to save us. Peter's at this highest moment of his life with this recognition, and then he's about to have a low moment. Jesus now, it says in verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. He starts teaching them Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant is about me. The chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and then after three days rise again. He's teaching them Isaiah 53. It says he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to praise him for coming, thank him for being the savior. No, rebuke him. You can't do that. God's king would never gain victory that way. But Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter says, no, Jesus, you can't suffer. That's not how God's king wins victory. That's not what life is supposed to be, which is actually true. Because God only exists to make us happy to give me victory. These trials and hardship that I face then have me questioning, is God even good? And then we also, we see ourselves as therapeutic because we say, God, you can't ask me to do hard things. You can't ask me to give up that thing, that sin. You can't ask me to seek to forgive someone that's hurt me. You can't ask those hard things of me because what you really want is my happiness. You just want me to be happy and you want me to win. So we, like Peter, think in a therapeutic way. But beyond that, we think as moralists and as deists. This is from John chapter 13. It's a fascinating scene of Peter not getting it. And we can see ourselves in it. Starting in verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal they were dining together took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So this is an insane scene. Jesus has taken a role that actually at that time would have been done by a slave, and he's washing the dirty, disgusting feet that are walking through all kinds of sheep mess and sand and dirt in their sandals, and he's going in the meal and washing their feet. He's showing them I am the suffering servant. Look at how I'm serving you. But Peter can't see it. Verse six, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Peter is us. He misreads how God would cleanse him. He doesn't understand it. You'll never wash my feet. I'll pick myself up. I'll clean myself up. 
I can't let you serve me. I'm going to do this by my own works, not yours. And Peter can't see that God is not a deist who's far off, but rather that God would draw near in the flesh through his son as a servant. He's missing it. But we think that way too. We think if I just try to be good, that's going to be good enough for God. If I just work to balance those skills in my favor, favor, then God will have to accept me. I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Thank you very much. And we see, don't see God as near. We say, I got this. Hands off. And so we end up, when we misread the story, we end up with a moral therapeutic deist Jesus. One Jesus who wins by conquering, only wants the strong, the good, the capable, who helps those who help themselves and is here to make me look good. We end up with a low standards Jesus who's hands off in my life and who can't really save me because I don't even want him to. So now we've got to go back. We've got to put on the Jesus lenses. We've got to go back to Isaiah 53 and let it, like a prophet's word does, speak to us, cut through the noise, and get into our hearts. So, starting with Isaiah 53, for the moralists, for the person who thinks they can be good enough. It says this in verse 6 and then in verse 10. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you've ever seen, uh, there's a meme, a, a video that goes around. There's like a, a crack, a big rocky crack that a sheep is in. And this shepherd just cranks it out of there. It's like three feet deep. The shepherd just cranks it out of there, gets it out. The sheep is free. It runs three steps and it dives headfirst right back into the crack just a little further up. That is us. Isaiah 53.6 is, con is confronting us with our lostness with our rebellion, with our badness, and with our sin, and yet also confronting us with the Savior who took it away. In verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Verse 10 is confronting us with the idea that we can get right with God on our own. And the idea that God is far off. Look what it says. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was God's plan to send Jesus in this way. Micah Edmondson says this. According to Isaiah 53, God made the righteous life of his servant Jesus Christ to be a substitutionary offering for the unrighteous. In obedience to God's will, Jesus lived the life we should have lived and so fulfilled the just requirements of God's law on our behalf. Yet he also died the death we should have died. Isaiah's graphic language of the servant being crushed and put to grief reminds us of the heavy price of our sin. At the cross, Jesus bore the full weight of God's curse against sin and so fully satisfied the demands of God's just condemnation against sin. So we have a righteous life that satisfies God's justice for us and an atoning death that satisfies his justice for us. This great exchange is the heart of the gospel. A great exchange 
a phrase commonly attributed to Luther is this idea that Jesus on the cross takes all of my sin to the cross and dies to bury it. And when he emerges, resurrected, he gives me all of his righteousness, the great exchange I give him, everything bad I've ever done, and he gives me all his goodness. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. Perhaps, then, Mike Edmondson continues, the most startling aspect of Isaiah's language is that it pleased the Lord to make this exchange. Or in our passage, uh, different translation says it was the Lord's will. Somehow it actually pleased the Lord to hand his innocent son over to be mocked, brutalized, and crucified. That's a nearly impossible truth to fathom until you realize why God was pleased by this. Certainly, God was not pleased by the sin of Judas who betrayed Jesus, the religious leaders who found him, Pilate who unjustly sentenced him, or the misguided crowd who rejected him. But God was pleased by the active and passive. Active obedience just means everything Jesus did in his life, and passive means obedience unto death. Obedience unto, of his son who continued to trust God and love his people no matter the cost. God was pleased to lay his judgment on the Son in order to save his sinful people. God was pleased because through the cross, the Son of God would be glorified, the people of God would be saved, the justice of God would be satisfied, and the love of God would be revealed. The cross wasn't a tragic accident. It was God's will, his plan to save his people through the work of a Redeemer and to reveal the immeasurable riches of his glorious grace. Now we're starting to get a picture of the real Jesus. The real Jesus who makes us right. Isaiah 53.11 says this. After he has suffered, this is this Messiah who's going to suffer unto death. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. Resurrection language. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Not be a good person and Jesus will love me but rather Jesus loves me and gives me his righteousness. He declares me just in him. This is a reversal. This is grace. This is what Peter couldn't understand. That it is the work of another that will make you righteous. Therefore, you have to let him wash your feet. Continue. Again, it says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Now, this is a word Isaiah 53 has for us who tend to think of God as just for our happiness and kind of keep him out of the picture. Verse 12, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Look at verse 12. Because of Christ's perfect obedience, he gets a portion. That's king language right there. I'm going to give him kingship, and he's going to share the spoil. He's the one who wins. He's the one who conquers. This is a word for us who tend to think God wouldn't let us go through hard things. Because the way Jesus gains victory is through his humiliation and through his obedience unto death, his obedience to God, that God's king, what Peter didn't understand, what we miss is a suffering servant there to serve us. In his suffering, which means he might allow us to go through hard things for something greater to emerge. 
He might ask us to obey him in ways we can't understand what he expects to do with it and just trust him in faith that he's going to do something greater than we can imagine. So let's keep going after this real Jesus. In Mark 10, this is right there. He's telling them, verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, saying Isaiah 53 is about me to his disciples. Philippians 2 describes him in this way, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He took on flesh, it says, being made in human likeness, the God of the universe, the eternal son of God, who's been in constant relationship with his father from the beginning of all things, came in the flesh, took on the nature of a servant, washed feet, and being found... In appearance as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to God, obedient to death, even death on a cross, the Lord's will. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess. Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So for those of us who tend to think of God as therapeutic, we have to see this because if the pathway to life for Jesus was this, then it must be ours as well. That God is good even when life is not. And obeying him is good even when it feels weird. And lastly, we've got to see Isaiah 53 for Deus. For those of us who think God is far off and disinterested, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Christianity, says this. In this prophecy, grief, suffering, and sickness are rolled up together with sin and guilt and loaded up onto the Messiah's back. And now Jesus is that Messiah. She says, and when Jesus comes, he carries that load. He bears the moral weight of guilt and sin in our place. All of our wrongness, everything that we've done to rebel against God, to hurt others, to choose self, to exalt ourselves, he takes all of that. But he also bears the heartbreak of our suffering. Jesus holds us close as we lament. He weeps with us as we weep. He knows the end of the story when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Spoiler alert for the last sermon of this series. But this does not stop him from cleaving to us in our pain. In fact, pain is a very special place of intimacy with him. She continues, we see this in our own lives. We can laugh with anyone, but we cry with those closest to us. And the bond is strongest when their suffering connects with ours. In Jesus, we find the one person who knows all our heartache and pain. Left by those closest to him, beaten by strangers, stripped and abused and hung up on a cross to die. There is no wound of ours he cannot touch. 
uh, for those that know uh, me, uh, my wife and I have an eight-month-old son, uh, and we tried for him for a while. Our story is not as hard as some others have been, but yet it was still hard for us. It took us eight months to get pregnant uh, with him, and, and if you go through that process, each month you get a negative pregnancy test, it hurts, uh, and it leaves you kind of wondering about life and God and the seventh month, right before I was like, I really got to start talking to people about this because this is getting really hard. I, we'd had the negative pregnancy test the day before, and then I saw friends on Instagram that I don't know Jesus, weren't interested in raising their kid after Jesus. Now, this is my heart, not them, but uh, had gotten pregnant. And I was like, I went down on the exercise bike we have in our basement. I was riding. I was listening to a song, actually, that I'll never forget now. And it has special meaning for me. The song's called Tupelo by Jason Isbell. And I was sitting down there writing and listening to the song. And, uh, and I just broke down. I was hurting. God was right there with me. There's no wound of ours he cannot touch because the suffering servant is who he is. That's the real Jesus, the one who comes and is everything for us. The real Jesus is the one who wins by losing, who is the sinner's righteousness, we're not, who seeks not those who help themselves, but the lost, who helps the helpless, and who is ever present in our suffering. He's the one who is numbered with the transgressors. What Peter couldn't understand, what we sometimes miss is that God king went to battle for us. And he's the one who wins. Now, all of him is available for all of us. The gateway to this joy is through the open arms of faith. And we say, God, I've been trying to make it my whole life on my own strength. I think what you want is a really good version of me that's happy and keeps you kind of on the wall. The real Jesus wants to draw near. He wants to give us all of him and to conclude, I want to look at this quote from Martin Luther so this can really sink in for us. Luther says, God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched, and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Isaiah 53 shows us this Savior who is to come. Shows us that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all, so that, as Luther explains here, the grace can be on the bottom shelf. God's standard couldn't be higher and the bar for us couldn't be lower because of Christ. So we want to put that grace on the bottom shelf because who does Jesus want, Luther says? He wants the forsaken, the sick, the blind, the dead, sinners, fools, the wretched, those who are in disgrace. So if that's you this morning, because I know it's me, all of Jesus is available for all of us. All we have to do is trust in him. And God receives us and delights to. We can stop clinging to our own strength, our own goodness, 
our own happiness and the idea that God's far off and instead see him as right here with us. We can see Jesus bearing our sin. We can see Jesus rising, offering his life, giving us his righteousness, extending us his grace. We can see Jesus present for you no matter what. Giving grace to those who are in disgrace. So, as we close, are you seeing the real Jesus? Maybe today's the first day. Maybe you're saying, I, I, I read the Bible that way. I think of God that way, as a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God. I didn't know he was present. I don't know that he sent his king to gain victory by dying. And that by faith in him, I can be right. Today could be the day, as it was for me uh, in 2015, where I say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I trust in him for the forgiveness of my sin, the fulfillment of all my promises, and his righteousness can become yours. That great exchange can happen in a moment. So are you seeing the real Jesus? And if you have, receive his grace this week. He's there. He doesn't need your goodness. He wants to give you his. He's there with you no matter what you go through. He's present. So receive his grace this week. We're going to move to a time of communion now. Uh, we're here at Hope. We say we practice open communion, which means uh, you don't have to be a member of this church or any church. All we ask is that you're a follower of Jesus, that you say yes to the real Jesus. Uh, and then you can come up and take these elements. The, bre the bread, the little cracker, represents his body broken for us. And the juice represents his blood shed for us that says to us, the grace is real. It's on the bottom shelf and it's here for us right now that he was glad to die for those who are in disgrace, and now he can be all of us. He can meet us where we're at. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team back up, and we'll conclude with a couple songs of communion. So take time to reflect on this grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the shocking reality of verse 10 of Isaiah 53 that says it was your will to crush the suffering servant. That you tell us 800 years ago, exactly what you think about us and exactly who you are. That now we can never doubt because you called your shot that you love us and you're present with us and that you want to justify us. So I pray for everyone in this room. God, would we just stop trying to impress you? Would we stop trying to make it in life apart from you? And would we just come to you and receive your son and his justification with the open hands of faith that his outstretched arms on the cross show us we can always draw near to you, so I pray that we would, and that we would enjoy and worship you today and this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.